On today's show, I'm going to be talking with Mark Goodman of Major Spark. They have a, well, I guess, a uh, long-running album that's just churning out lots of really intriguing tracks. Uh, the current is Run, Run, Run. Uh, it's a follow-up to Beautiful Noise and I'm Not Gonna Stand Around. Uh, the full album is called Beautiful Noise, and I think uh, they're doing something that we don't see a lot of nowadays is really combining some really intriguing influences of garage rock, power pop, throwing in a little psychedelic and lots of really cool synths. So I want to talk about how uh, Major Spark came to be, where this sound came from, and much more. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. Oh my God, that was a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I know that Major Spark is you and your producer, Brian Charles. How did you guys come together and how did you create the band? Um, Brian Charles uh, started a studio called Zippa Recording um, about 33 years ago. Um, it's a very beloved studio in Boston, Massachusetts. He's produced um, probably hundreds of bands over the years. Um, he's been recently producing Chad Stokes of Dispatch um, and just a lot of great Boston um, singer-songwriters, bands, all, all different genres. Um, and unfortunately, Zippa burned down in December of 2021. Um, and so uh, Brian is now currently producing out of other studios. Um, but we're trying to get Zippa rebuilt. Um, he did a GoFundMe that raised about $200,000 from the Boston music community. Um, and so I met Brian when I had a band a uh, long time ago called Magnet. Um, there's about 50 bands called Magnet now, if you look on Spotify. Um, we uh, were known in some, you know, sort of niche indie rock circles because our debut featured Mo Tucker from the Velvet Underground playing drums. Um, that album was called Don't Be a Penguin. Um, we recorded it uh, in New York City and then Mo joined me on a couple of tours, which was really fun because um, true fans of the Velvet Underground came out to see her play. Um, it's the uh, only full length where she played um, uh, drums, I think. I know she played drums with some other bands on some EPs and things, um, but it was really cool. The Velvets did a, a reunion tour. Um, they actually played, I think, with U2 in Europe. Um, and so she had these great drums from that tour. Um, and then I recorded an EP at Brian's studio with a producer named Matt Wilson, who had a band that I was a big fan of called Trip Shakespeare. Um, they were from Minneapolis. Um, and Matt, Matt's an incredible producer and musician. And we did that at Zipper Recording with Brian Engineering. And so I've known him for a long time. Um, and uh, there were a few other Magnet albums after that. And I took a little break from music for a while. Um, and then uh, I had the idea for a sound um, that I wanted to go for. Um, uh, and so I contacted Brian with the idea and I said, hey, um, you know, I've always been very influenced by indie rock and probably back when, when Magnet was around, I was listening to a lot of pavement and bands like that. And I said, do you think we could write a really up-tempo pop record because I'm listening to a lot of 
sad indie rock these days. And I think we need <laughs> something um, to pep things up, something that you could, you know, have a party to, um, you know, drink beers on the front porch to clean the house, go for a run, whatever. And um, so I had, uh, I had some ideas about the sound and Brian was totally up for it. Um, and so we came up with um, uh, a method that kind of combined our strengths. Um, and it was mm -hmm. unlike anything um, he or I had really done before. Parts of it, I have to say. Run, Run, Run is probably a song that's like right down the middle where that was familiar to both of us. But some of the things we did were, you know, were interesting because they neither of us had done them before. We opened up a can of worms with the whole state of indie rock now. And it's such a good reference to the Velvet Underground. You know, think of the 60s and what Velvet Underground did, you know, leading into late 70s, early 80s, college rock, even new wave, you know, going into the 90s with grunge rock. Um, and when I hear Run, 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 even, you know, the first notes of that, I'm kind of thinking of, you know, Nirvana and, and what was going on in the 90s. So where has that evolved to? You know, what is the state of indie rock today? Well, I can't really, um, I can't speak to the state of, uh, of, of an entire genre. I do think that um, it means something slightly different than it used to. So um, I think indie rock used to mean a bunch of people, um, you know, writing music that kind of came from a punk rock ethos of doing it yourself, getting in a van, traveling around, um, trying to push the boundaries of creativity, um, no rules, whether you're using guitars or synthesizers or whatever, um, uh, but not playing punk rock. You know, I mean, some of them had punk rock influences, um, certainly when you think of Pixies, for example, um, you know, they're kind of like godfathers of, of indie rock. Um, you know, they, they, they were heavily influenced by punk, yet I, I don't really think of them as a classic punk rock band like the, you know, Sex Pistols. Um, so uh, I think today, you know, if I look on, say, Spotify for an indie rock channel, I, I think um, the sound has gotten a lot quieter. It's as if everybody listen to Elliot Smith and Mazzy Starr um, and uh, Connor Oberst and said, ah, that's indie rock, you know? And so mm -hmm. um, I like a lot of it. Um, uh, and I certainly am a huge uh, Elliot Smith fan um, and Bright Eyes fan, uh, um, you know, but um, there's less of that kind of up-tempo stuff, I think, in, in the genre. And I think there's also a big difference in that, um, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to get in the van anymore and travel around, you know? I, I think it makes you a, a good live band if you do that, um, but that's not something that we currently do. Mm -hmm. Well, do you miss college radio? So I think one I, thing the in internet's yeah. done is it, it kind of took away the importance of that. So um, um, I actually, uh, I think that's a great question. So I'm very lucky in that um, in Boston, um, 
I have three college stations that are on heavy rotation whenever I'm driving around. Um, so uh, MIT has a fantastic radio station. Saturday afternoon on MIT is just, I mean, you might as well spend the whole day in your car. It's got um, show after show of stuff that you, you probably haven't heard before. You know, it's, it's, it's really great. I mean, you can, you can listen to the stuff online, so anybody can listen to it, but it's just a lot easier in the car. Um, Boston College um, also uh, has a couple of shows that are fantastic. They play um, a lot of new releases. There's actually a professor there who's a music writer named Maura Johnston. And she has a show on Thursdays um, where the first hour is almost all new releases, um, really good stuff. Um, and then Emerson uh, College has um, a big station that has a, has a really huge reach. You could probably get it you know, 40, 50 miles outside of Boston um, called WERS. They're probably considered one of the bigger like AAA stations. Um, so even though it's a college, um, they're more like a KCRW or a KEXP out of Portland. Um, um, KCRW is the one in, in Los Angeles that's really influential. Um, and so, uh, so I actually discover a fair amount of music from Shazamming stuff that I hear off college radio. And I would say finding new stuff is a, is a real addiction for me. So, mm -hmm. um, I listen to playlists that that you know uh, premiere or whatever the the right verb is new new singles by people, um, and so I'm always looking for stuff, um, and I keep kind of a running playlist of um, you know things that I've discovered, and I share it with friends of mine who are uh, journalists and people basically who are who are real um, music fans. And, um, you know, so I can go back and actually see like during the time of writing Major Spark, I could look back and see, you know, what, what specific songs or, or groups, uh, you know, I, I discovered at the time. And sometimes it's not like something that, that just came out. You know, I'll give you an example. I heard a song by a band called Defiance Ohio. Did you ever hear them? No, but I like the name. Uh, so um, uh, they've, um, the, the only song I can remember right away is there's, they have a song called 1111. Um, and I would, uh, I would definitely check them out. Um, really interesting group, um, kind, of a, kind of a punk vibe. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and so it, it doesn't sound anything like Major Spark, but it was it was something where I heard it and I was like, ah, this is this is interesting. Um, well, yeah, I think you hit upon something there because it, it's this catch twenty two or a conundrum. I don't know what you'd call it, but with the technology, you know, you find a band like that and you can share, say, their YouTube video to people on Facebook. That's great. But the drawback to that is everything's like an algorithm now. So you go to your YouTube channel and based on what you've listened to before, they make suggestions. But that's not the same as curating a list on a radio station. And like what I love about college radio is you have real human beings with a passion for discovery. And I don't think an algorithm can really do that. There's no way. And, um, and, and 
I think the thing that's interesting is, um, you know, when I look at some of the things I've found, um, uh, you know, they're not, they're not brand new. I mean, I, 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 I just uh, was blown away by this song by the Black Angels called Bloodhounds on My Trail. Um, and that song definitely will influence what we do uh, in one of the songs that we're working on for the next record. Um, well, for your stuff, how do people discover you? I mean, do you get a lot of feedback saying, oh, I saw your video on YouTube or, oh, someone shared this on a Facebook page. How do people discover your music now? Uh, so I honestly, I can't give you a, a really good answer to that um, simply because we we haven't been around that long and we're we're not out touring. So we're not um, talking to people uh, saying, oh, how'd you find us? Um, the other thing is uh, we're not good at social media. Um, we don't spend a lot of time on it. Um, and so we do have social media and we will post things. Um, usually it'll be some kind of music that we discover or if somebody um, adds a song to a Spotify playlist or adds a, a video to a YouTube playlist, we'll say thanks. But um, you know, we're not uh, on there 24 seven, you know, celebrating what we made for breakfast, um, you know, and, and every little thing in our lives. So um, I think some people have probably found us from being on Spotify playlists. Um, we did have some really good support from some radio stations. So the station I mentioned in Boston, WERS, um, they definitely played uh, the title cut. Um, a bit and they played, um, I'm not gonna stand around. Um, and so I've had the experience of getting in the car and driving to the grocery store and then you know hearing my song come on, which is a nice kick. Um, uh, well, what's the challenge with programming you? Because you obviously have a core theme and I see like a lot of nostalgia for you know the garage bands, a little psychedelia, but you also have you know, modern synth sound, and even like, I think Beautiful Noise was very, you know, straightforward dance music almost. So uh, is there- I, I, Yeah, I wouldn't say almost. Um, so- <laughs> uh, Downright. Yeah, yeah so, what, so what's the challenge to to get you programmed in because you you do defy genre? So so that's, it's a, that's a really interesting um, thing to say. Uh, so I have two comments on that. Um, mm -hmm. The first is I would just like to talk about specifically the song Beautiful Noise. Um, uh, so, you know, Brian and I come from a background where there was a genre of music that we kind of created music for, um, and it was alternative rock radio. And so when I was and that, that's that genre doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, I mean, WERS is sort of an alternative rock station now. Um, uh, and so, you know, the, the, the kind of music, um, you know, like if if the Pixies came around today, you know, it, I'm not sure there's a radio station, you know, that would play them outside of these sort of, you know, big college stations. Um, so, uh, so we didn't, you know, we're, we're not we're not trying to make music for a specific genre, um, but our background is in, you know, as you said, sort of the old school indie rock. But we didn't 
our goal was not to write that kind of music. Our goal was to write something a bit more up-tempo, more slamming. And so for the song Beautiful Noise, we looked to um, uh, the Chemical Brothers and Fatboy Slim, uh, Death in Vegas, Crystal Method, like these really, really fantastic EDM groups that were part of a sound called the Big Beat. Um, and uh, the, the, you know, the groove is not a direct copy, but it is, you know, it's from that style of music. So Brian created that groove first, and then um, we wrote the song to that groove. So, um, and the way we wrote the song is kind of interesting. Um, he, he put the groove up and um, I basically sang to it nonstop for about 30, 40 minutes, uh, just improvising. And, you know, most of it uh, was crap, um, but, you know, we listened back and we were like, oh, that's a good line. That's a good line. And so um, uh, we edited it together and then recut some of it um, and then uh, worked with uh, Miranda um, on uh, some of the vocals because we wanted to add in the sort of Hope Sandoval breathy vocal sound in the chorus. Um, I've always liked that when these EDM groups do that. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. she, she's, I think she's sung on songs by maybe Death in Vegas. Um, so uh, that's, that's how that song was created. And we, we're really proud of it because it's, it's not something you sit down with an acoustic guitar or an electric guitar and write. Like, you, that's not the type of song you would write that way. So for me, it pushed me to, to create in a new way. And, and for Brian, I think it was the same thing you know, because he's producing bands that walk in with a song and then he helps polish up the song. Whereas this, we're just starting with a groove and, and writing over that. And mm -hmm. the, other thing, the other thing I'll say about Brian is, you know, I wrote, you know, a couple hundred songs probably in bands that I played in. And nobody ever really said to me, um, as I think lyrics were probably one of my strengths. Um, you know, I'm like an okay guitar player. Uh, but, um, you know, the lyrics are probably a strength. And so nobody ever said to me, you know, what, what the hell is this song about? You know, like, like you can do better with the lyrics here. And so Brian was constantly doing that to me through writing this record. Um, and we would work on two songs at a time, take them home, listen to them for a couple of days, and then come back into the studio. And, and he would rip apart the words. So each of the songs probably had somewhere between eight to 12 verses, just so that, you know, I could finally get to a point where, you know, he'd be like, all right, all right, now this is good. Um, and I liked that. I liked being pushed like that. And I did the same thing to him with his uh, guitar playing, with his bass parts. Um, uh, you know, there was one song uh, called, well, we called it Turn It Up and Tear It Up. So there's actually two different versions of it. And he wrote this solo that was good. You know, I said, Brian, that's a good solo, but I want you to write a great solo. And so he probably did like 25 solos in an afternoon. And I was like, all right, 
You're close. But what I want you to do on the next one is I want you to play one note as long as you possibly can and then go from there. And so he did that. And it's one of my favorite solos I've ever heard. Um, so playing what playing one note. Well, he that's how it starts. But then he, he tears into it. Um, oh, OK. And, uh, why, uh, why do you why do you think that brought out his best solo? Was it because he had to restrain himself at first? Yeah, I think it creates a tension, you know, um, when you when you hold hold one note and and when live you can sort of pull it off because you know you can look at the crowd and whatever you know it's like like playing something monotonous live sort of works when you're in a studio and it's just you're just listening to yourself you know and and you hold one note you, you think oh th this isn't good I got I got to go somewhere with this um, and so uh, um, I just I I really liked the way the way that turned out and so I thought that was a good example of of me pushing him with what he was doing um I think it's pretty easy to understand how he was was pushing me um both with lyrics and with vocal delivery um mm -hmm. uh, so he's a very good vocal producer um and so then I think that was a long-winded answer to a question about <laughs> the, the the different genres and so we weren't thinking genres and we sort of think of it as a cohesive record where there's not a slow ballad, there's not a waltz, there's nothing slow and drippy. You know, it's all pretty up-tempo. Um, and there's, there's a second song that uses a bit of a dance beat called Rolling Waves. And that one is probably um, one of my favorites on the record because the chorus, a lot of times people sing a sort of verse you know down in a low register and then and they go la you know way up high for the chorus to kind of lift it and give it more energy and with that one um uh we, i went down for the chorus and um i really really like the way that one turned out well let's talk psychedelia because i know you list that as one of your influences and i think that term has gotten I don't know, I think misunderstood over the past few decades. Like when you think of 60s psychedelia and and the summer of love and just, you know, Jefferson Airplane and, you know, the mood back then. And then, you know, a few decades later, you think of maybe the rave scene kind of resurrecting its own form of, I don't know, I wouldn't quite say psychedelia, but sort of a mind altered state of music. Uh, what do you think that means now? And and especially aside from, you know, where I think it's become kind of this commercialized thing at its core, what was the musical essence of the, the psychedelic music movement? So I can't, you know, I, I hate to keep dodging your broad questions, but I can't, <laughs> um, like, like, I can't, uh, I'm not a music journalist. So, so when you say psychedelia, um, my question back is, is I, I don't hear a lot of that today like like when you say it today who are you thinking of are you thinking of king gizzard um no i'm, um, I'm thinking of you you because uh, i'm just saying when you list that in in your bio of some of your influences what part of that do you take and put into your music like what what are those elements that you think are in your music um so you know, honestly, I, I don't know. Um, I can tell you that um, I'm actually slightly distracted because I'm looking at the playlist of 
stuff that we were listening to when when we were writing this and i'm trying to think like what was you know what was the psychedelia so there was a a song by love that i listened to a bit you know the, mm -hmm. the arthur lee group um the black angels are have a little bit of a you know a, a psychedelic sound and it's not the a hippy dippy version of it mm -hmm. um i listened to a lot of the birds um just like if i'm going to sit down and read the the paper you know i find the birds are like great background music i know that's probably a little bit of an insult but um uh you know so so to me um I don't I don't think of of what we do as as psych rock, you know, in in, in the way. Um uh, what's that? What's I I'm sorry, I can't remember the name, but there's like a really good spaz rock group. Um uh the OCs. Um like they I think of them as like sort of a modern psychedelic group. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and you'd also mentioned earlier something about which I, I think you were mentioning what what would have been called maybe dream pop. How a lot of alternative has become this more softer, dreamier quality. Do you think a lot of it has kind of gone through that filter? And maybe we're interpreting the, the, a mind altering experience as a dreamier, lighter kind of music. No, you know what I think it is. Honestly, a lot of your questions are getting at um, how people listen to and consume music today and um i think a lot of it is that people are consuming music in headphones mostly ah, okay and um and if you uh you, you know unless you're like you know going for a run or or um, you know slamming your head against the wall like i you know i don't know i i don't i don't hear a lot of amazing metal being written um and i'm sure people like listen to that um in their headphones but i think just walking around you know it's nice to have like kind of a, a dreamy voice in in your headphones um or something you know kind of uh, uh thought provoking um so uh you know I, I i just i just hear a lot of that you know and sure I, I honestly, I think that stuff's hard to do well. You know, I know people are like really into Beach House and I just, I just feel like people, a lot of people heard Mazzy Star and said, ah, that's for me. You know, I'm going to mm -hmm. write music like that. It's sort of like a lot of people um, heard the Ramones or the Sex Pistols and said, oh man, I got to do that. Um, and so um, it is interesting you know, to figure out like where where does all this sad sort of dreamy rock come from? You know, like uh, I know a lot of people are into Mitski, and um, you know, Mitski is like a little bit of queen of sadcore. Um, uh, but um, I, there's definitely a couple of Mitski songs I like. But what do you think? What do you think this whole thing of just tacking on core to everything, this core and that core and there's so many subgenres now. If there's every, you know, if you had to like have an encyclopedia of every something core music, <laughs> it's kind of cool. But at the same time, it's it's so micro niched now. Uh, it is. It is. Um, I don't. I don't know. Maybe that if you if you really like uh, 
a particular album and it fits right into this genre, it does make it easier to discover other other stuff. Um, I, I did hear um, an album a long time ago, um, a couple of them actually, and I thought, oh, I got to do a record like that. And it's it's in a genre called slowcore. <laughs> Which slowcore? Okay. Yeah. So that was um. I do you have you have you listened to the band Low? Low. I'm sure there's more than one band. Low. Is it just no, L O W? No, no. This, uh, this is just L O W, and and you'd never forget it. Um, okay. Um, I, I I like like so I'll I'm, I'll give you I I saw a Low concert that I will never forget. I went to the Baltimore Public Library with giant ceilings. And the the uh, famous movie director John Waters was there. It was like a real scene, and low play so quietly, and the notes and the songs are very slow, and the notes in some of the songs are held so long that the voice it doesn't even sound like an instrument. It sounds like a a, a keyboard sound with vibrato. Um, the woman in low has just an amazing voice, and um, uh, it's the crowd was so quiet that if you like put your your glass down or um you know like when <clears throat> like that everyone would turn <laughs> and like look at you um and so to me they were sort of like the the the, the king of slow corn. and what's really funny about them is in in sort of the height of when they were kind of becoming a thing steve albini produced one of their records and I don't know if you know who he is, but he was he was the guy who who produced um, Nirvana. And so it's really funny that the guy who created this monster sound with Nirvana turned around and and, and produced a low record. And so um, one of the magnet records is is in that vein where where the introductions to the songs are about a minute and a half, two minutes long before you get into the singing. It's it's all slow, dreamy tempos um and uh what was cool about that um is that it's very consistent it's easy to put on you can work to it um it did exactly what we wanted and um one of my favorite things about that record it was called caffeine superstar um <laughs> and uh is that it was used in a surfing movie um and and that kind of dreamy sound worked really well with slow motion surfing footage mm -hmm. well i'll put that on my to listen list I think it's interesting that uh, it was a John Waters. You said he was there. Love his stuff. You know, one thing he always did early on is he put a lot of vintage music in his movies, although back in the day it wasn't quite as vintage as it is now, but he always, I think, used music as an important part of his soundtracks and a lot of the bands he grew up with in the 50s and 60s. Like, is there like a director where you would just be thrilled if they incorporated your songs into one of their movies? Well, I think the, I mean, the first person who comes to mind is Wes Anderson, because oh, yeah. I think um, um, all the the soundtracks are so important to a Wes Anderson movie. And um, I heard a story. I don't know whether this is true or not, but I heard that he really does not like to fly. Um, it's sort of like John Madden. He, if he's going to get from LA to New York, he's driving, and he will put together in the old days, you know, big pile of CDs to listen to during the drive. Um, today, you know, it's probably a playlist, 
Um, and so he's a, a massive consumer of music. And I think it shows in his movies. I think his soundtracks are generally really, really interesting. Um, you know, from the, the, the movie with, I mean, he did a lot of movies with Bill Murray, but Life Aquatic, I think is David Bowie music sung by a Brazilian songwriter. So all the Bowie stuff is in Portuguese. Um, okay. I, I think his first movie, um, oh, got Rushmore. Um, that soundtrack is amazing. And, and you know who did, you know who wrote a lot of the music that was not, you know, just songs that you might have heard before, but Mark Mothersbaugh wrote all of the original music for Rushmore. And um, he's the main guy behind Devo. Oh, okay. Um, and so he's become a major, uh, you know, he does a lot of soundtrack work. Um, okay. And that's something we're we're honestly like major spark. We're we're trying to get our stuff used in TV shows, movies, because the old magnet music was was used in about um, a dozen movies and uh, a lot of TV shows um, and a lot of old MTV shows used to use our stuff. Um, oh, so wow. um, uh, it, it's kind of fun when you watch a movie and and your songs in there. Who was that guy from Oingo Boingo who went on to do so much film music? Uh, Danny Elfman. He's Danny done Elfman. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. He's done tons. And now you've got uh, Trent Reznor doing it. That's right. Could you see yourself segueing? Cause I, I have to re-mention uh, one part of your bios, probably my favorite when you describe your sound, uh, synth drenched textural soundscapes now if that's not begging for some kind of movie soundtrack uh, treatment so i didn't write that <laughs> oh. well it was, it's a good right whoever wrote it i really like that i'm, I'm gonna yeah. i'm gonna I'll use that, to term. that i'll have to tell him that you liked it um yeah especially the textural soundscapes because i think that gives you a lot of freedom to use your music um definitely uh, so, um, you know, we, we would definitely, um, love that, you know, so, um, I have a few friends who produce shows and I'm always bugging them. Hey man, slip one of the songs in, in one of your shows. So mm -hmm. we'll see. Well, well, we're going to wrap up, still have a couple more questions, but to make sure everyone knows where to find you, uh, where do you want people to find you to either hear your music? Uh, see your videos, you know, buy your stuff, where should they go online? Um, so again, good question. Um, I know that we're streaming on all the major services, um, Spotify, Apple, um, the videos, uh, you know, YouTube, I guess is the easiest place. So wherever there's the least amount of friction, um, we do have a handful of vinyl copies of the record. Um, and that's, uh, you can get those at a band camp shop. Um, you know, that's probably major spark music. Um, I'm terrible with URLs, but you know, if you Google <laughs> band camp and major spark, I would hope we would come up. Yeah. Google it. It's always fun when you Google a name and then you figure you find out, oh, major spark is also the name of a plumber in Manitoba or something. Yeah, well, so because because I had a band name that was 
you know, pre-internet magnet. It seemed like a good name at the time, but in the <laughs> internet age, it's a horrible name. And in fact, um, there was a very successful band out of Norway called Magnet that had a massive hit with the Bob Dylan song, Lay Lady Lay. Um, and that wasn't even too far after, um, you know, we stopped touring. Um, and so it was really weird, I thought, that the guy took the name, um, you know, because we had it first. Uh, but he was more committed to it. He's got a huge magnet tattoo on his arm. So I kind of give him credit for going all in. Um, and uh, it is just crazy to me, like how people don't even bother to check, you know, um, uh, an acquaintance of mine, um, you know, had a band called Luna that was huge in, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the 90s and 2000s um, with tons of records. I mean, at least eight, nine records out and toured all over the world. And, um, you know, I see these bands like release new stuff under the name Luna. And I, I, I sent the guy a note. I'm like, this, this seems crazy. And he's like, I know, I know. I got to send notes to them. You know, please stop. Um, and so uh, we actually checked Major Spark to make sure no one was using it. And when you Google it, not much came up. Um, we had a couple other band names like that, but we're saving them. Mm -hmm. I, nowadays, if you use anything that has craft in its title, you do a search, you're just bombarded with Minecraft. It's like it just, the first 2,000, yeah. you know, results will be Minecraft. Yeah, no, it's a good idea to um, check. I think that's why people do really weird stuff with, with band names. I don't know. There's all sorts of tricks, putting symbols in it or things like that. Well, the final, the biggie. And, and I think this kind of ties into what uh, your whole career has been about. You know, people think things are so static. You know, you come out, you you make a name with one name and then for the next 50 years you know celine dion's always going to be celine dion but in the band world you know the whole nature of bands is to do a band a few years later you know form another band with you know the drummer from the previous band and things evolve if you're you know a true band guy you know you're just going to evolve over the years and you're going to go through phases and you know it seems like for you the important part is you're just still doing it and you're evolving and you're trying new things. And in our, you know, heavily, you know, more than ever youth-oriented pop music culture, you know, very, it's becoming increasingly disposable. You know, how, how do you want to do the rest of your career? And, you know, to you, what is career longevity and, and what satisfaction do you get, like right here and now, you know, what's exciting you as an artist? Uh, so there's a couple a couple of ways I would answer that question. So um, the first is, uh, I think your observation is correct. I once wrote a song that was a little bit mean um, called Trainwreck 101. And it was about how some of my heroes, you know, wrote one or two great albums. And then their career was like a ski slope. You know, it was just by the third or fourth, they'd run out of ideas and, you know, they're, they're just putting out crap. Um, and I think it is hard to, especially if you have the same lineup over time to keep, um, you know, to keep improving and uh, creating. And 
you know, I don't want to name names, but I'll name one big name. You know, I think the Rolling Stones have made millions touring off of five or six fantastic years of creativity where they wrote some of the best songs ever written in, in the rock genre. But, you know, I don't know. You know, I think they've done 30 years of really nothing. Um, so it is uh, remarkable when, when somebody comes along and they can, uh, you know, still keep doing it. I, I loved uh, uh, what Cash did at the end of his life. I don't know if you heard those Cash records. Mm -hmm. At the end of the Johnny Hurt, like the Hurt cover yeah. and all that. Yeah, yeah. He, he did at least four records um, with Rick Rubin, the the you know Beastie Boys producer. Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, that guy's produced tons of people, but um, you know that's a really good example of somebody putting something out relevant years and years after they first uh, uh, came on the scene. Um, so I think that's that's pretty admirable. Um, so I think what we're trying to do is um, just push the boundaries of what we've done before. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and we, we do have, have some rules around what we do. Um, so we are gonna keep to uh, kind of up-tempo, high-energy music. Um, uh, I think there was a certain lyrical theme in this first album, Beautiful Noise. Uh, and I think we'll take uh, some of the restrictions off of the lyrics. I mean, if, if you really listen carefully to the theme of the songs, they're all tied together. Um, and uh, so we've written half of the first, half of the next record already. Um, we're in a little bit of a holding pattern um, because, because the studio burned down. Um, uh, and we're, we've got a possibility for the next Zippa studio, um, you know, but it's, it's, there's a, you know, there's a studio owner who might sell his studio. Um, and then that would be a, a great fast way of getting up and running again. Um, and Brian and I will work in other studios. It's just a lot slower. Um, and it's, uh, it's a little bit harder to be creative when, um, you're renting somebody else's studio. Um, so I think that, um, you know, if, if you ask a songwriter, what's the best song you've written, you know, most of them will say, well, I just wrote this one, you know, it's better than anything I've done. So I think people, I don't know, maybe not everybody feels that way, but um, uh, I'm usually into, into whatever I've just written. So and what and what what is the thing you can bring to the table that some fresh faced 19 year old rocker cannot? Uh, well, I don't know about a rocker, but um, I think, um, you know, you know what that question reminds me of? Uh, do you remember the old? Uh, did you ever read The Onion back in the day? Oh, um, yeah, I love The Onion. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't think they've kept it up. Uh, to where the quality used to be, but they were part of the AV club and they had this uh, this really obnoxious question, but I always loved it. They would <laughs> they would turn to bands and they would focus on a band and, and there were only two questions. And the first question, not even a question really, was justify your existence. <laughs> you know, like, I love why, it. 
why, why bother? Like there's 10,000 bands, why do we need another one? And I always thought, you know what, that is actually a really good question. Um, and I think uh, what we're trying to do is, um, you know, again, we don't hear a, a ton of music in our genre anyway, that is for, uh, you know, having, having a party, putting on music, turning it up loud, driving around, going for a run, cleaning your house, whatever it is. Um, but having the music, you know, give you a little jolt of caffeine in your day. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I think some people might get that from, you know, there's probably some, some, some good hip hop or, or rap music that might do that these days. Um, and so I imagine there's a lot of 19 year olds who might get their jolt that way. But um, what I've seen in people who are in their teens and 20s is that um, music is less of an identity for people. I think um, when I was that age, uh, you know, you had stoners who listened to, you know, Marley and the Dead and now Fish and groups like that. You had metal kids, you had punk rockers um, and people kind of stuck to, you know, they, they wore clothing, et cetera, that matched the music that they listened to. And it was kind of who they were. Whereas today, I think people, you know, the same person, you know, would listen to Mitski, would listen to, you know, some goth band, would, you know, would listen to like an old Led Zeppelin thing. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking I, I, I uh, coach sports, so I work with uh, young people and I'm always asking them, what do you listen to? And it's just weird to me, the string of artists that will come out of their mouth and they'll listen to pop music, you know? So I think um, we're still trying to write stuff that's pop. We would hope that it would cut outside of a narrow, you know, indie rock genre or whatever. Um, you know, so we're not gonna write something that's like just a six minute noise song. Um, but uh, um, I don't know. I can't even remember what your question was. But I hope I answered. I, I think you answered it even better than uh, <laughs> how I asked it. But all I can say is um, I, I took notes. See, here's what's fun about talking with you. Like you know, you turned me on to the band Low, so I'm taking notes here. And so when I'm done, I can look up all, all your references. And that's what I love when you talk to a knowledgeable uh, musician who is constantly refreshing themselves and constantly looking for new inspiration. So that inspires me. And so I'm just gonna say, uh, wait, wait, I've been talking. Wait, wait, wait. If if you're gonna if you're gonna go there, I gotta give you a couple. I gotta leave you with a couple. You ready? Okay, I've got pen in hand. Okay, so uh, you gotta. Ch so you know where indie rock is just in its having an amazing renaissance is in Spain. Yes. And so there's this group I love. They put out a 10 song. It's a 10 inch. So unfortunately, if you're playing it on a turntable, you have to make an adjustment. But they're called Aiko El Grupo, A-I-K-O-E-L-G-R-U-P-O. -E and their, their first album, fantastic. Um, so that was kind of a cool discovery. Um, I've been a fan of a band called The High Strung for a long time. 
and their new album, they've been around like 20 years, but their new album is really quite good. Um, okay. And then there's a guy who does um, music for soundtracks, actually, who's an electronic uh, musician named David Holmes. And uh, his stuff is, is pretty interesting to listen to. Um, and let me just see if I've got one more for you. Uh, let's see. Oh, you know who we listened to a bit? Um, was the proper ornaments? Oh. Um, their song "Recalling," I think, is a fantastic song. Um, and then there's a, a Spanish group called Hines, H-I-N-D-S, and they they've definitely broken out of Spain. I think they're playing a big music festival here in Boston. Um, Excellent. Yeah. So well, that seen, I seen hope that's yeah. Now this is good. Now I, I'll put them on my list and and get reinvigorated. Well, really appreciate you sharing all this. Uh, to remind everyone, Mark Goodman, the band is Major Spark with producer extraordinaire Brian Charles. Current album Beautiful Noise with the current single Run 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 and many many more good songs on there. Uh, really encourage people to seek you out, to discover you, call up their college radio and demand that they add you to their playlist. So uh, thank you so much, Mark. And I really hope you're able to hit the road this year. All right. Thank you. Thank you.